Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. How I Built This is pleased to have Upwork as our presenting sponsor. Visit Upwork.com to get hiring. Upwork has a message for you. Everything you know about business, it was made up by a bunch of guys 100 years ago. Don't stay bound to their antiquated rules like the 9-to-5 workday, commuting to an empty office building, or only hiring full-timers. Embrace a new way of working with Upwork. It's a portal to the future of business, and it's disguised as a website. Go to Upwork.com. There you'll see the light and also find talent for projects of any size, from simple deliverables to complex projects, from short-term help to full-time hires. You can finally let those old business titans and their tired ideas rest in peace. This is how we work now. Visit Upwork.com to get hiring talented professionals today. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, it's Guy here. And before we start the show, a question. Do you ever get nervous when performing or speaking in front of an audience? I definitely do, and I have to stand in front of a lot of audiences. Well, I recently interviewed Zoe Deschanel, and she had a great tip I hadn't heard before, a tip that's allowed her to get out of her head and into the moment. You can find out all about it and hear my conversation with Zoe on my other podcast, The Great Creators. Just search for The Great Creators with Guy Raz wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, on to today's show. So how many treadmills and rowing machines did you initially buy? Ten. Ten, ten rowers, ten treadmills. Okay. Right. So when I opened up that studio, I spent every penny on the treadmills. I wanted to pay everything all out. And even more insane is that I had not piloted that actual program. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what if this doesn't work? I just signed a five-year lease. I have all this equipment in there. And I just, again, we get back to intuition. We get back to what's in your gut that you feel. I just feel that there is no way people aren't going to exit there without results. Welcome to How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Ellen Latham went from being fired from her dream job to a second act as the creator of Orange Theory, a fitness franchise with more than 1,500 studios around the world. The startup game is for young people, right? This is a common belief and a frustration I hear from older folks who think you have to be in your 20s and eat ramen out of a bag to build a company. Except it's simply untrue. In fact, in 2018, Harvard Business Review published a study by four academics about this very topic. They crunched numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
and they came to a counterintuitive conclusion about startups, which is this. The average age of a successful startup founder in the United States is 45. 45. And we've had a bunch of these older founders on this show. Roxanne Quimby was 40 when she founded Burt's Bees with her partner, Burt Chavitz. Pete Warhurst was 46 when he started the national storage business, Pods. Pat Brown was 57 when he left his job as a professor at Stanford and started Impossible Foods. Bob Moore was also in his late 50s when he left seminary school and created Bob's Red Mill, one of the biggest natural food brands in America. The thing about starting a company later in life is that you usually come to the table with a lot of experience and credibility. So for anyone listening to this today, feeling like you missed the boat somehow, well, just wait until you learn about Ellen Latham. Because Ellen was well into her 50s when, with two partners, she started Orange Theory, a fitness brand that today has over 1,500 studios around the world. Now, if you haven't heard of Orange Theory, it's a fitness program that combines cardio, strength training, and core exercises into one workout. Orange Theory studios usually have a row of treadmills and rowing machines, and the idea is to keep your heart rate elevated throughout the exercise period. And what's amazing is that the brand, which seems like it's everywhere, was only started in 2010. Now, at the time, Ellen was running her own small exercise studio in South Florida, where she developed a workout that would become known as Orange Theory. For most of her life, Ellen was a fitness instructor and a manager of fitness centers. She worked at YMCA's and later at a few high-end spas in Florida. But after she was fired from one of those jobs after a conflict with the owner, Ellen had to figure out how to make ends meet. And that was how she started her own business, first by running fitness classes out of her home and eventually renting a small studio. Ellen first learned about fitness from her dad. He was a high school coach in Niagara Falls, New York, where Ellen grew up in the 60s and 70s. There were four kids in the family, but Ellen's extended family was much bigger than that. A huge Italian family with lots of uncles, aunts, and cousins all around. The whole caboodle. Yes, I was uh, born to the youngest of eight children from an Italian immigrant family. My father was the youngest of the eight brothers and sisters. All of the relatives lived in Niagara Falls. So just the eight brothers and sisters and the first and second cousins were 140 Calendrellis in Niagara Falls, New York. Wow. And there was always a cousin in a class that I was in or a teacher. And we had every holiday together at my grandmother's house. It was very tight. My grandmother spoke very little English, all Italian. Wow. And it was all that you see on TV was exactly how I grew up. <laughs> wow. Your dad was a PE coach. My father was a phys ed teacher and football and track coach. And he was, he they, people in the city didn't even call him by his name. Again, it's like one of those lifetime TV movies. It would just be, hey, coach, hey, coach. coach. So you're, you're in the grocery store and someone's screaming across the tomatoes. Hey, coach, see you at the game this weekend. And then yeah. everyone would come out to the football games, the whole city. Yeah. And um, how would you describe yourself as a kid? I mean, your dad was a coach. Were you, I mean, 50s, 60s? You, I know you grew up in the 60s. 
girls started to play more sports or to, you know, that started to become more common, but still not until really the 70s. Yeah. Did you play sports as a kid? Yeah, very, very little. I played softball intramural leagues. Uh, I played some volleyball. And then, you know, being a cheerleader was kind of as physical as you kind of got in the 50s yeah. and 60s. But yeah. I truly was my father's daughter. There's not a doubt. Out of all four of us, I just took to him in every which way. You know, they say, I guess your first love is your father. That's no joke. He was bigger than life to me and uh, and just influenced me growing up and to this day at 67 years of age immensely. Yeah. Very disciplined. I was that kid who was extra early, like uh, getting projects done at school. I was kind of that stay within the lines kind of kid, you know, discipline was big to me. And my father, you know, that was big to him. I guess you were probably, I don't know, 15 or 16 years old when 72 was the year Title IX was passed, which really started to even the playing field literally for boys and girls, men and women um, in high schools and colleges that there had to be equal access. And that really began an explosion in women's, girls and women's sports. Do you remember being 15, 16? You know, because I think you were already like into fitness, physical fitness at that time. Yeah, my first job was at 17 and my job was working at the YWCA and it was to put women, and I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about, but in fat jiggly machines. Yeah, you've seen, I've seen those, those old newsreels of that. Do they work, those machines you'd stand in there, there'd be like a strap around you to just vibrate? Right? People would stand in those things. Absolutely not. Okay. I would go, I'd strap that around the woman's hip, thighs, and butt. She'd grab a magazine. She'd jiggle for about 15 minutes. I'd go and turn off the switch and I'd send her on her way. Unbelievable. Like, there must have been somebody who said, well, the science shows that this will make you lose weight. There was no science to fitness for many, (laughs) many decades. But women, they came in, they joined that membership, and it gave me my first job in the fitness industry. <laughs> this is what we, what your first job was. And, and I don't know, I, what was a YWCA in 1973? What, were there classes? Were there, because this is sort of, sort of pre-aerobics era. Yes, that was, we used to call them slimnastic classes. Slimnastic. And yes, you wore your tights in those like very unattractive bodysuits, and uh, you would circle your arms about a thousand times in one direction, shoulder width height, a thousand in the other direction, and that was supposed to tone the arms. So I started teaching those classes. Oh, yes. Gosh, I wish I had this all in a reel. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, that was, you know, what was going on then. Then aerobics hit and uh, the leg warmers came out and Jane Fonda, you know, made a big hit with aerobics at that time. And I was then teaching kind of choreographed. I've taught about everything you could teach as far as group fitness. Hmm. And, And I guess you stayed in the area you went to for college. You went to SUNY Buffalo. And then you went on to get your master's degree in exercise physiology. And I guess while you were at SUNY Buffalo, you were also teaching at the YMCA, I think dance aerobics, which was like sort of an early kind of aerobics class. Yes. How did you learn how to become a teacher for that? I mean, was there like a certification or was it just like, oh, yeah, Ellen, you know, she could do it. Like, you know, Ellen, you know how to do this, right? Like, why don't, why don't you just teach this class? 
Yeah, in the early days, that's exactly what you did. And then it started where there were tapes. And oh my gosh, I remember we had to, like, I had albums at home and had to design my own music and put it on one of those little, you know, cassette yeah. tapes. Cassettes. Yeah. You really kind of did a lot of winging it. And then yeah. they started to get a little bit more organized when Jazzercise started pulling together kind of dance aerobics and more of a structured format, but nothing ever based on science. Yeah. You know, it really was this kind of trendy fad type of stuff, particularly for women. Yeah. And how would you describe your your physical fitness level at that time? You're teaching dance aerobics I, and you were in your probably late 20s at that point. Were you in pretty good shape? Yeah. And working at the YMCA, it was very interesting because working there full time, you know, I was in the weight room with the men and there were no at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, women lifting weights. Yeah. But being I knew all these guys and I worked there full time, I'd go down in this basement weight room and I was lifting weights with them. I was doing some triathlons. I, I was definitely, you know, into the fitness part of things. Hmm. And I guess eventually you worked your way up to become the director of the YMCA in Niagara Falls, right? Yes. I became the first female director. There was only men before me. So you had a pretty good life. I mean, you and I think you got married and eventually had a kid. Was your expectation to stay, you know, because you had a big family, mom and dad and siblings and aunts and uncles all there. Did you expect that you would make a life in Niagara Falls? So I married my high school sweetheart. My sister moved to Fort Lauderdale. Hmm. And I would come here and I would just want to go to all of the fitness studios and gyms and see what was going on here and could not believe such the difference between the small yeah. town of Niagara Falls. And there was just, wow, a real desire to, you know, I was a big fish in a small pond in Niagara Falls as I kept pushing through, you know, managing the Y and all of this. But uh, there was this great desire to come here, and I knew I had to start to be a small fish in a big pond, but yeah. my husband at that time and I moved here to Florida. We did not have our son at that time, and then we had him here in Florida. But you moved to Florida without a plan? Well, we didn't have jobs. Nope, we did not. And uh, But, you know, spas were great, were huge in Florida mm. at that time. So I applied for a job. It was called Bonaventure Spa. And that's where the movie stars would come, like Dallas was big then, and Linda Evans would come and stay a week. You know, this is where you would come, you'd stay oh, a week, right. okay. you'd get fit, you'd yeah. take a thousand classes. And I went and tried out for a job there, got that and said, wow, I like living in this, yeah. working in this kind of environment. And you were hired as the exercise physiologist. You had a master's degree, so you were, I mean, obviously you had serious qualifications. And what did that mean? You were, you were hired to oversee their exercise programs? So I did a lot of the testing. So when the clients came in, I would do like submax cardio testing, that type of thing mm -hmm. on a bike usually to see where they're at. I then gave them some information of what they should train at heart rate wise. So I was doing this way back and then give them actually a written program to go home with. Now, this is before, mm -hmm. you know, it was a lot of computer kind of things going on. So I literally remember like handwriting all of this out with sometimes stick figures which is absolutely insane. Yeah. Tell me what was happening in the world of fitness in 1988, you know, when you started, because I think you, you ended up being there for about five years um, at Bonaventure. 
Yeah, so that was like aerobics, and, you know, it was all about fat burning for these women. That's what they were interested in. Yeah. So there was a ton of classes. I taught water aerobics. I taught stretch. I taught relaxation. I did morning walks with them in the morning. Uh, we had a dietitian there, so there was a lot of nutrition. And it was very high-end, and the owners at that time were very willing to put a lot of uh, money into it, which, you know, I had never been around whatsoever in my life. So I just thought that this was like the best. Take me back to an Ellen Latham class in 1990. You know, your dad was the coach. So he was the guy with the whistle and he was like, let's go, guy, hustle, let's go. Was that your style as a fitness instructor? Totally. Totally. People today who are like, do you remember when you were, and I had very curly, thick Italian hair down my back. It was of huge volume with those headbands on, very scary, Uh some of the photos. Uh, And yeah, I was like overzealous and over-inspiring. And yeah, I was my father. (laughs) Would Would you like, come on, let's go, you know. Don't be wimps like that kind of stuff, like tough love. I, I wasn't that. I wasn't that. And it's so funny you say that because when we created Orange Theory, I told the guys, please, let's not have boot camp in our name because yeah. I did not like that. Ten is enough. Give me more. I wanted yeah. that. Ten is more than enough. You look great. And you tell me when you're ready to push a little more. I'm here to support that. Yeah. There's a photo of you in your got to be in your late 30s, early 40s, and you're just ripped. You are just like really strong. You're, you've got, you're, I think you're doing um, rows with weights. Yeah. And so, I mean, did you have women who saw you and say, I want to look like you and show me how to do that? Yeah. I mean, women liked my arms. They definitely did. You got a lot of cotton, arms and legs. And that was, you know, because I was working out with the guys and, you know, definitely women who started to be more comfortable with that. But it was a very slow integration because women were very panicked that they were going to become too muscular. There was that for many years, the fear of, oh, I don't want to get bulky. I don't want to get big. I liked what was going on, you know, in my body because- You were strong. I, I just really liked it. I like all aspects of it. So, but, you know, a lot of women weren't quite ready for that. You, in your first, like, few years there, you and the man you moved out with, a husband uh, at the time, you divorced when I think your son was little, maybe a year or two old. Right. How did you deal with that at the time? I mean, I can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine that was a really hard time for you. Yeah, he was two. And definitely, you know, definitely one of the major hurdles when you look down the hurdles of your life and the challenges of your life. Listen, we were together since we were 14, 15, small town Niagara Falls, and nothing majorly happened up and beyond. We've kind of you know, grew into do different people. You were yeah. so young. Yeah, yeah, you didn't, yeah. It you... really was that. But he was a fantastic father to my son. He is like a part of our family now. Nick, my existing partner in him, we've all go and spend time at my home in Nashville, literally under the same roof, visiting wow. my son and the grandkids. Oh, wow. We have the healthiest type of divorce that uh, could be. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. So meantime, you're building this reputation in Florida. And then in like, I guess around 1993, you you have an opportunity to jump over to another spa in Miami Beach, this one called the Williams Island Spa. 
And you end up spending several years there, like I think like six years. And pretty early on, you became the spa director. Yes. And what what was that like? I mean, it was this is 1993. It was, uh, I guess, a, a luxury spa? It was a luxury spa. This was my dream job. Mm. I absolutely love working with the clients. You know, fitness and exercise isn't something that people skip through the tulips and want to do, at least not the masses. You know, you got yeah. some that are innately love exercise, but it's not like a massage. Oh, I can't wait to go get no. a massage, you know? Right. So it's how do you change that way of thinking for people? How do you really give them hope when they really feel, I'm not going to be able to do it. It's too hard. I won't stick with it. All of these doubts. It was that kind of challenge that I loved. Yeah. And then even more doors started opening where I wrote a fitness column for the Miami Herald. I did fitness tips on Fox News uh, and Channel 7 in Miami. Hmm. And then I started doing celebrity boot camps. So soap opera stars from New York would come down for a week. I gave him the idea because I used to do this at Bonaventure Spa. So yeah. they'd come down for a week and I'd have a group of my trainers and myself and we would put them up and we would feed them and we'd do everything from rollerblading on the beach to fitness classes. And it was really for the facility all about this great publicity they would get. And they got a lot. Yeah. It was truly the dream job. Ellen, you, I think, have the kind of personality that but you've just got a million ideas. And, and I have to imagine that while you were there, you were just inundating the owners with ideas like, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this and that. And probably some of those or many of those ideas brought in more customers. Absolutely. I literally brought spinning to Florida. So I was at a convention and it was great. They'd send me to every convention and I'd want to go. And I saw Johnny G in the corner who Johnny G invented spinning. And he's in the corner with two bikes. And I go over and I'm talking to him and he's from South Africa. He's got this accent and he says, you know, this is great workout classes on bikes in a group. And you know, I'm kind of looking a little sideways, just going, oh, oh, gee, I don't know. He put me on a bike. He put me through like, I think a half hour. And I was like, oh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> I went back to the owners and I said, please let me bring in 10 bikes. You will get ridiculous publicity from this. And this is like 98, 99. Well, yeah, way, way before it was out there. Yeah. Because I remember when I was a kid, we had like a, an exercise bike. Those existed, but spinning was different. Yeah. This was new. Absolutely. So they were like, uh, okay, Ellen, uh, what do we, I said, listen, don't worry about it. I just intuitively felt there was something to it. Yeah. Well, we brought it in and- You brought 10 spin bikes in. 10 spin bikes. You okay. couldn't, people, I mean, there were wait lists beyond wait lists. The Miami Herald, the Sunset, and all the newspapers, the TV stations, what is this weird class? Because it wasn't, it wasn't out there. And, uh, but you're absolutely right. I was just always excited about innovation, about, you know, what What's next? Yes, you're spot on. All right. So you start spinning classes there at the gym and everything's going great and you get fired. I did. 1999. What? What? You're 43 years old, I think, around that time. What? What's going on? So, you know, these were private owners and I'm me and I was always into continually wanting to do more and grow. And I think I was feeling that the four walls were maybe, you know, a little tight and I wanted to do some things on the outside mm. more. You were entrepreneurial. Exactly. But you were an employee 
of yep. the Williams yep. Island Spa, and they wanted you to focus on their business, understandably. Exactly. Yeah. And I probably pursued a few things that, you know. What did you do? So Fort Lauderdale didn't have spinning. So my friend owned a gym and I had conversations with him of, you know, want to partner up? We put 15 bikes in. Now I had this kind of down to a science. And, uh, you know, he was like, yeah. And so. Let's bring those. And, and so you bought some bikes or you bought them together? So we got them together and we were going to do this little, which I, I had discussions with, you know, my owners about this. Wait, they found out about this? Did yes, you try to Did correct. you keep the gym quiet? Were you, I, or, or... I, I had conversations with them in the early stages about it. Then, yeah, kind of silent. Then they brought me in to kind of, uh, is this something you're doing? And I said, yeah, I really want to do this type of thing. And they said, well, then we need to part ways. Wow. And it was like quite scary because again, I'm like out of a very good paying job and, you know, I've got a nine-year-old son and I'm single parenting. And, but again, it was just this, like, there was obviously an itch that I had to scratch. Yeah. But at that moment, of course, you're sitting in, wow, what did I do now? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, basically get up the next day with that ache in the pit of your stomach and, you know, really decided, you know, and this is where, you know, my father, he was still alive then. He was such a great influence. He was one that focused on, so there's a sports psychologist theory called momentum shifting Mm -hmm. and you can momentum shift up positively or down negatively. So, you know, your team's losing, your players are not performing. Instead of focusing on what's not going right, focus on what they do well, have discussions about that, put energy into that. And that's how you will climb out of that. And he was lived by this whole momentum shift up theory. We actually had discussions about that at that time. And you called him and you said, Dad, I've I've got to leave this job or they're basically asking me to to leave. Yeah, Yeah. And I don't know what to do. And do you remember what he said to you? You know, he made me start to think about, well, what do I do well? What can I start building off of? So I did get that little concession, spinning concession going. And that brought a nice supply, not a lot, but at least, you know, some finances in. And then um, I started doing Pilates because I went and got a Pilates certification. I just kept certifying and everything. And I bought one machine. I put it in a spare room next to my son's bedroom. And I had, I solicited the women in my spinning classes to come and do private Pilates with me in my home. (laughs) And that's how I started my entrepreneurial hanging of a shingle in a spare room next to my son's bedroom. When we come back in just a moment, how Ellen moves from that spare room in her house to her own studio and how an unexpected windfall from Cole's department store helps her grow even bigger. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. 
As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus, Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com built. Masterclass.com built. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This. I'm Guy Raz. So it's around 1999, 2000, and Ellen is teaching Pilates out of a spare room in her house. She'd love to open her own studio, but she has no money to do it. And then one day, when she is literally getting her nails done, she stumbles on an opportunity. I did my nails at a spa that had two floors. The second floor, the woman who owned it had kind of a storage room, 1,100 square feet, that she just stored stuff in. The girl who did my nails, I was telling her all about, and I said, you know, I don't know. I just feel like there's something to this Pilates. I think if I did it in a group setting, no one was doing Pilates with 10 machines. Absolutely not at that time. Mm. No one, a matter of fact, when I went for certification, they kind of poo-pooed doing in a group. There's no way you can do this in a group. You got to correct people too much. And, but my brain just works differently of how I saw it. And so I just felt there was something to it. And yeah. so I, she said, talk to the owner. I'm going to set you up with a meeting with her. I talked to her. She said, I'll take the boxes out. Let's figure out a, a year-to-year lease so I didn't have to go hang a shingle anywhere. And yeah. Nick, my partner, who now were 22 years being together at that time, we had been together a couple years, and he basically said, I will loan you the money to buy the machines. Hmm. And I bought 10 Pilates machines. How much did each one cost, do you remember? Oh, they were pretty expensive. I think the whole thing cost about $38,000 that he wow. loaned me. Wow. And uh, I bought them right out. 
and I put them in there. I figured out how to do it in a group. I was only doing one-on-ones before, but how would I teach? But now you had 10 clients. A yeah. group, that's right. But that's right up my alley is kind of figuring out group fitness, a little out of, of typical lane. Yeah. And um, it exploded. Hmm. And I paid Nick back in four months. Wow. And were you leading all the classes? Was it just you in the studio and you teaching all the classes? Or were you able to hire somebody else? There was me and one other person, but I was absolutely teaching morning, night, and day. Wow. Yeah. So you were there all the time running this thing. And what was the studio called? So it was called Ellen Studio Fit. And it was just Pilates? Just Pilates. Okay. Tell me a little bit about, because Pilates is um, a lot of core exercise, right? But there's not a lot of resistance or impact, right? So Pilates is about your stabilizer muscles. So you have muscles at your joints, at your spine. They stabilize your bones, muscle to muscle. They are your inside muscles. That's how I look at them. You have outside muscles. You work out in the gym. These are your inside muscles. So yeah, they're going to make you from the inside out strong. This is going to prevent injury. This is going to give you better posture. This is going to give you more flexibility. And many of the women saw differences in their trunk because the trunk is the main stabilizing, uh, you know, muscle for your arms and legs to work off of. So they all they started seeing all this reshaping, and that's what they absolutely loved about it. And it was all women, your customers? Very few men. Very few yeah. men, all women. Although a funny, kind of exciting story, one of my women clients was Matt Damon's wife now, Lucy. She was a bartender in Miami, and he is still married to her, a matter of fact. And wow. so she's coming, taking classes when she was just started dating him. And I don't forget her telling me one day, so I'm going to bring um, my boyfriend to class. Do you mind? And I said, absolutely not. Of course, bring him. And she goes, well, He's kind of like a movie star. (laughs) So it was right out of the gate, like Matt Damon's taking a Pilates class. (laughs) Yeah. So the Pilates gym, as a standalone Pilates gym, lasted for about four years. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And you, because of a variety of things, you had to move the location and you were getting feedback from clients that they wanted something more. You started to think about like a a new fat-burning workout. Correct. So they were looking for a workout that would burn fat. They would be of a cardio workout and Pilates didn't do that. And, uh, and then it just so happened that, you know, talk about timing. I guess I've had a lot of fortunate timing. A Kohl's department store wanted to build right on top of me. Well, my lease wasn't done, so they had to buy me out. So now I had, like, some money to move to a bigger space. And I said, okay, I'll build another room, and I'm going to create the ultimate metabolic workout for you guys. So I ended up uh, finding this cheap <laughs> space, uh, which was bigger, and built it out. A friend of mine, husband was a builder, so he helped me out. And I built the first phase of what now is the Orange Theory Fitness Workout. All right, let me step out for the story in a second, ask about the science of weight loss, because of course this is elusive, right? I mean, it's like the fountain of youth or the holy grail. Everybody's been searching for it. But my understanding is that weights and resistance training actually has a bigger impact on weight loss than cardio alone. 
It's a combination of both. But when you do cardio like we do it, which is interval training, you are asking the human heart, which is the most important muscle in your body, to exert itself over 80%, 80 to 85%, and you create what is called an oxygen debt. So you know when you're puffing air, when you're like really pushing hard? If you do at least 12 to 20 minutes of that in your workout, your body has to repay that debt. So over the next 12, 24 hours, the human cells, your body is working harder to bring it back to that homeostatic state. So that is what is changing your metabolism, hormonally, all of those good things. Lifting weights is absolutely a great compliment. You want that to it, but you would not not want to have a cardio component. Yeah. And so how did you start to think about what how you could answer the sort of the demand from your clients. How did you start to think about a new kind of exercise regimen? Yeah. So that's where I went back on all those years in exercise fizz and really understanding how the human body responds to exercise. And that's when I said heart rate interval training, that is the key. Because what you can do in 12 to 20 minutes of getting your heart rate over 80%, you would have to go jog at just a steady state pace for an hour and a half. So 12 to 20 minutes to an hour and a half, pick one. Uh, Most people would pick the 12 to 20. So when you want to challenge yourself, especially in intervals, the muscle cells that you want to hit are all in your lower body. You know, that's where the large muscle is of our body. That's where you start to get real, your heart rate goes up. Correct. Squatting, for example. Correct. Correct. So treadmill's the best way to do that. That's the best piece of equipment. And then we did put strider and bike in there for people with orthopedic issues. Got it. And then the rowers was non-impact power. Hmm. So think of power as like a light bulb. So a 100-watt light bulb has more wattage to it than a 40-watt light bulb. As you age, you lose wattage. That's that energy. I need another cup of coffee. You're losing this energy cellularly. So I need to find something that, so for example, CrossFit uses box jumps. So Mm -hmm. you know how they explosively jump? Well, I knew my knees weren't going to be interested in that, and my women weren't going to be interested in that. So I had to figure out what could I find that would give the same physiologic response but non-impact to the joints? And I found these rowers that no one was using in the corner of gyms. Yeah. And so I said, perfect. I'm going to use rowers for my power wattage. I'm going to use treadmills for my interval training. And I'm going to use dumbbells and body weights and weighted balls and BOSUs for what's called usable functional strength. And by the way, this was not a new theory. Like, this was the basis of a lot of exercise routines, right? Yeah, I absolutely did not create interval training. It was created in the 1940s. And basically, all I did is put terms. We have base, push, and all out. Base is your aerobic zone. Push is your anaerobic zone. And all out is you kind of just finish off with piling some lactic acid in the system where you have to walk it off. Right. Basically, the idea was you'd have three different intensity levels during the exercise. The base level, I guess, just your sort of aerobic, moderate heart rate. Yeah, aerobic. Yeah. And then push, like really getting your heart rate going and then all out getting you to the maximum heart rate, right? Yes, correct. And so it's really this dance between base and push that you become extremely metabolically charged. And that's how I was training. So that's a part of it too. Don't forget, I was now at that time 51. So it was like, there was also an aspect of what am I, you know, want to do in the next couple decades without damaging myself? Yeah. There was this great varied 
fitness levels in a class. I mean, I would have a 65-year-old with a, you know, who had heart issues next to a Miami Dolphin in my class, yeah. and they're all taking the same class. But this is this is interesting because you're coming up with a a new way of exercising. There's treadmill. There's going to be the rower, and the rower's low impact. That's great. Yeah. But, I mean, you, it seems very counterintuitive because if you were, you had to move to a new space, and, like, from a – you'd already invested all this money in Pilates gear, like – from a cost-effective perspective, like the best thing to do would have been to like just put mirrors all around the walls and a couple of ballet bars and then done. You got a class, right? <laughs> like you don't have to buy any equipment. Now you're talking about treadmills and rowing machines. I mean, that's like... Insane. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> it, it is absolutely... And, and even more insane is that I had not piloted that actual program. So I'm running my women around parks, doing base pushing all out. I'm got BOSUs in the parking lot doing. Those BOSU balls are it's like a half yoga ball with a rigid back, and you can stand on it and use it for push-ups. And right. And you were you were using BOSU balls and things like that as a, to experiment to figure out what worked in parking lots. In parking lots with whoever would sign up. Exactly. Well, I had this group that was you know very committed to me, my Pilates women. So when I opened up that studio, I spent every penny on the treadmills. I wanted to pay everything all out. You know, that comes from my father, a family thing. Not a lot of things you got on yeah. credit. You're paying stuff out. And I did that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what if this doesn't work? I just signed a five-year lease. I have all this equipment in there. And I just, again, we get back to intuition. We get back to what's in your gut that you feel. I just feel that there is no way people aren't going to exit there without results. So how many treadmills and rowing machines did you initially buy? Ten. Ten treadmills. Ten rowers. Ten rowers, ten treadmills. And when you start it, like when you bring people in, you're like, okay, we got the rowers and the treadmills and the BOSU balls and just like listen the weights and just follow my instructions. Like that must have been weird to like go, go into a room with like 10 treadmills, 10 rowers behind it, BOSU balls and weights. And like, what? how did people react initially? Oh my gosh. It, it, when I, again, I wish I had like video of that in the early days because <laughs> it was literally a three ring circus. And there was a lot of trial and error, let's face it, you know, and the fact of figuring out like I had people running into the bathroom throwing up because they overexerted and I had to really figure out like how to bring them back with language, with, you know, the design of the template. So there was absolutely a learning curve. Thank goodness. M many of those early members are still working working out in that original studio doing this workout because they found such success with it, but they stuck with it even through yeah. the learning process. So initially, this was called the ultimate workout, right? That's what you called it. Ellen's ultimate workout. Ellen's ultimate workout. And it was an hour, right? Yeah. Roughly an hour. What did, I mean, just from a business standpoint, right? How did you make sure that this was going to be sustainable? Because you'd invested a lot of money in all this equipment Walk me through the math. Like you had to charge people for the classes and you needed the classes to be full. Yeah. 
You know what's really crazy then? I didn't even sell memberships then. I only sold it by the class. By the class. It, okay. That's really crazy. So you have yeah. to really be performing if you're talking about, you know, you're only getting paid for people showing up in that class, not just yeah. a membership turning over every year. So, you know, it really forced me to not only be a great performer with this kind of workout myself, but start to train other coaches to coach this workout as well. Yeah. You know, listen, in the beginning, it was a crawl. It wasn't like I was packed out of the gate. People yeah. were a little like, whoa, what is this? Oh my God, it's too hard. But it had some sustainability. And I think that comes from the performance end of things, of me yeah. getting on that floor, Vinny getting on that floor, who was my coach at that time, and just really making sure that people left there feeling noticed, making sure you did a great job, you know, really things that are more important than just going in there and killing a workout. Yeah. And who were your customers at that time? I mean, who were your typical? Is it like a super fit woman between 25 and 40? It was probably women 25 to 50. It wasn't super fit because, again, I wanted to really appeal to, you know, uh, like I said, my Pilates women, I had a variety of fitness levels. Yeah. And that's where, you know, we really worked from the front of the house, the front desk to the coaches, making the first workout, the first five workouts, you know, really down. Just walk. There's no jogging. Don't jog. I know you can jog. Mm. Just walk it Walk today. on the treadmill. Don't yeah, run. Don't yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because the, the key was making them successful. Yeah. I knew that if they exited the front door going, oh, I can do that, yep. they'll come back. Our, our oldest member is 95 years old in Colorado, and, you know, people can do the workout. And so that was, again, this was not yet Orange Theory. This was Correct. Ellen's ultimate workout. And, yep. And how long do you think it took you before you were you could kind of breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, this is working, this gym is working, good, we got it going? It was probably a good year, a good mm -hmm. year that, you know, we figured out how to really design these templates that, you know, we weren't killing people, but we were really... And when really... you say we, it was just you and this guy, Vinny? So there was Vinny, there was myself, and there was Casey, who actually now owns my Ellen's Ultimate Workout Studio. Oh, wow. Which still exists. Yes, Absolutely. And uh, the ultimate workout still exists and is very busy there. So there were the three of us that were coaching classes. All right. So you've got this going and it takes about a year before. But then now you're kind of in a stable position. You are not sitting back and thinking, OK, Ellen, now am I going to conquer the world? That was not what you were thinking. Absolutely not. I was thrilled. I was like, oh my goodness, look what's happened. I literally started working out of a spare room in my house. I did this like little build over time. And uh, I have this great place that people love. I love going to. It's, I was thrilled. All right. So you've got this gym that is pretty good, doing well, and making a living. And I guess one of your clients, she mentions to you that her husband, a guy named Jerome Kern, is like an expert in franchising and that you should meet him. What What do you remember about that? Correct. So she came to the front desk one day and she said, Ellen- What's her name, by the way? Uh, her name is April, April, April Kern. Okay. Mm -hmm. And she you know, said, look, at this workout is crazy. It's waitlist only. There was a waitlist to get on. Yes. 
And so she said, you know, listen, my husband and his partner are in franchising. They were big in the Massage Envy world. He owned, you know, a whole region of Massage Envy. And Massage Envy is like a, mas- a, a massage franchise. Yep. And his partner worked for the company, Dave Long. They partnered off and they created their own franchise company. And they're looking at concepts. And she said, hmm. I told them about you. I said, you've got to meet this woman that's got this thing going on over there. And guy, really funny how the story goes. I remember exactly that moment and looking up at her. And just the franchise word was very frightening to me. It was the unknown. And I looked up at her and I said, April, you know, that's great, but I know nothing about franchising. You know, I don't think so. And she left. (laughs) Yeah. So what had happened was I went home and I'm like telling Nick and my sister and, you know, this is so crazy. This one of my clients came in and she's and they're like, uh, entertain it, uh, have a conversation. Have a conversation, of course. You know, if anyone could pull this off, you you probably could like get in there and give it a good run. And so uh, she came in like the next day and we're talking and I said, you know what, why don't we connect? And Jerome ended up coming over with Dave. They took a class. Mm. We sat down, had a conversation. And I got to tell you, I don't know much about partners and business because this was my first, but uh, we decided to give it a shot. When we come back in just a moment, why Ellen decides to trust two strangers with her business and how it grows from one gym to over a thousand in only nine years. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Coriant has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This. So it's 2009, 2010-ish, and to expand her business, Ellen has joined up with two franchising experts, Jerome Kern and Dave Long. 
They plan to open a pilot studio in Fort Lauderdale with the same concept as Ellen's Ultimate Workout, but with different branding, starting with the colors. My room was red at Ellen's Ultimate Workout. So they said, you know, why are your walls all red and this and that? I said, well, colors to me represent energy and red is dramatic yeah. and intense. And so yeah. they said, well, we don't want to copy that exactly. You've got your studio there, they said. And so we talked about colors and orange is another very dynamic color that's about energy and all of these great things. Yeah. And orange was like a close sister to the red. Yeah. And then I, I don't know, I think it was Dave who came up with Orange Theory because of course, the theory is you need to get your heart rate in that yeah. anaerobic zone 12 to 20 minutes. And that's how the name came about. So Orange Theory was going to be the new name and it was going to be... So Ellen's ultimate workout would, would remain, but Correct. Orange Theory would be spun out of that as a new brand. And you open the first location not too far from there in Fort Lauderdale? It was in Fort Lauderdale. It was a good, like, 25 minutes away. It wasn't okay. right... Yeah. And... How long did that take to build that out? And Well, that was, you know, yeah, we had to figure out what does that mean? What does it look like? How big is it? What is the best footprint? So that was small. I think that might have been about, was that 2,900 or 3,000 square feet? Mm -hmm. We started identical, the 10 treadmills, 10 rowers, 10, you know, weight stations, that type of thing to my studio. You know, and then we had to start writing manuals. You know, basically the three of us are looking at each other and going, okay, you know, how do we do this from the ground up? I mean, they knew franchising, but, you know, if you're going to duplicate this, you have to find ways that you're going to be able to do it and it not be about Ellen. So yeah. interestingly enough, in the early days, they basically said, just so you know, you can't coach here. You can't show up a lot here. We have to prove our concept that this can be duplicated and it not be about Ellen. Right. So that's what the challenge was. I did make them put cameras in the studio because I wanted to see how the coaches were coaching it. So I did negotiate that. I mean, they're right that to scale a business, you got to depersonalize it, right? Yeah. But my, what I'm wondering is, I mean, here you had this concept without any any desire to franchise it, but then you had two people who knew how to franchise and saw in your concept an opportunity to franchise it, rebranded it Orange Theory and said, let's try this, right? But yeah. how did you protect yourself? Like, how did you guys figure out, because I'm imagining they were putting in some investment in it and they were going to put in some money into it. How did you, How did you make sure that you could still control it or own most of it or all of it? Or I don't know. Oh, yeah. I definitely got great counsel. And luckily I had, I mean, these gentlemen are just so legit. It's not funny. I just was so fortunate to have yeah. men who respect me every step of the way, who are, you know, supportive of me and my ideas. And, you know, look, this is different as a woman coming in, because like you say, you don't know what you're getting involved with, with individuals that you don't know. And uh, yeah, I lucked out. You were 50. I'm sorry I keep repeating your age at the time. I, and I, I'm just saying it because it's awesome. Like I want anyone to hear the story to understand that you can start a business at 55. Yeah. You can start a massive business at 55 or 60. Like you can start a business that will become a billion-dollar business. And at the time, 
Did you have a patent on this? Could you patent it, this model, or could any of it? I mean, in theory, Dave and Jerome could have just taken the class and taken some pictures and been like, let's just replicate this. Yeah, possibly. I mean, actually, some people tried to do that, and it, it just didn't, like, take off. Yeah. When I had it at Ellen, some people flew in and heard about, you know, this woman who's doing this workout and this and that. But... um you know, gut-wise, I felt, you know, Jerome grew up in Buffalo, you know, right in my uh, backyard, okay. which was very... Yeah. I felt there were these signs, you know what yeah. I mean, Guy? There were these signs that said, I don't know, I think, like, we're good. <laughs> All right, so the Orange Theory gym opens, and you're not really allowed to go there much because they want to see if, it, if it's going to work. But presumably, from day one, the idea was, let's franchise this concept of Orange Theory. It was. And look, we felt... Even if we have one of these, two of these, three of these, let's just do the best we can with. And if, you know, that's all we have, then we have three fitness studios we share together. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember those kind of conversations amongst us, which I think are important as opposed to sitting around a conference table and going, you know, let's, you know, these kind of bizarre expectations and you're maybe not paying attention to the important things. All right. So you have this first gym and... The idea, and it's amazing to me that's just 2010. Here we are in 2023 at the time of this recording, and we're talking about something just 13 years ago. But um, one of the ideas, I guess, is to bring in technology, right? Your your concept exists. Your concept was there. It was like get your heart rate to one of these three zones, right? Like yep. you want to be between 70 and 90% of right. your maximum heart rate for most of the exercise, for most of the hour, right? Yep. And so the concept was there, but there was no, you weren't like giving people heart rate monitors or measuring them. But these guys, your partners, they suggested, let's bring this technology into the studio and they make did. that part of it. They did. They said, you know, listen, Ellen, you always talk about what you do not measure, you cannot improve. Yeah. What if we did that? you know, legit with everyone having heart rate monitors. So at that time, the only company out there was Polar that really was sure. you know, doing it. The strap it to your, your right. belly, I think, right? Yeah. So we started with them and uh, the guys just really wanted to keep forging forward in this, that they felt that here's a real unique path and lane for us to not only the workout that you created, but having this valuable information that our members could have in regard to heart rate response. Yeah. And who is up there, like with Peloton, right? There's like leaderboards and you're kind of competing against other cyclists. This is different, right? You're not competing necessarily against the other people in your class. No. Our emphasis is competing against your last best performance. You know, you're only going to have so many people that are always on that leaderboard. We offer that. We put that on there for some people who like that. But our emphasis is working against yourself. And the model is not a membership model. Oh, it is. But, but it's not like a, you don't have to sign up for a year. It's like a month-to-month -month thing, Correct. right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, I'm curious because... It's a very – depending on where it is, a, an exercise gym can be very risky and isn't necessarily guaranteed to succeed. I mean I think lots of people listening have been to empty gyms, right, You know, especially in, in areas where there's a lot of saturation. I mean did anybody say, you know – there are a lot of gym concepts out there like there's bar, there's this, there's that. You know, This is just risky. 
We were told constantly, don't do this. Don't put your own money in this. Don't. Yeah. There's too much in fitness out there. Absolutely. We heard it over and over it's and saturated. over again. Yes. And that didn't scare you? You know what? Again, I think that they believed in me in regard to the workout and we just agreed to reinvest. You know, we they still had business in Massage Envy. I still owned Ellen's Ultimate Workout. Yeah. So basically, we agreed as partners to put every bit of money coming in, invest it back into the company with heart rate monitoring and these types of things that would truly differentiate us. I think within 18 months, there were 12 Orange Theory Studios. Were they all franchised? They were franchised, correct. And listen, in the beginning, they, you know, it, it, it was it was a lot to work out. We had one in Arizona. We had, you know, most of them being built in Florida around us, which made it easier to control. Yeah. But from what I understand, the first few franchise units did not actually perform well. Like, this was not going well initially. Like, right. What what was the problem? Were they just not trained well? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was, you know, do we have the right partner uh, who is the franchisee? And also, you know, some of our systems needed to be, you know, the three P's we say are really what create great success in franchising. You have to have the right people, the right processes, and the right program. Well, yeah. the right people is your franchisee, your staff, so on and so forth. The right program is like, again, the workout that I created. Well, the processes are the system. How are you checking people in? How are you following up with them? You know, those we needed to maybe tighten up a little. So we stopped franchising. We worked on our processes. We worked on the program, the training, this type of thing. And then we reopened the franchising concept. And that really worked well for us. Ellen, how did you guys, I mean, you'd gone from running this one gym and teaching classes and then, you know, you had some employees and, and so you were kind of overseeing it. But now you've got a growing, you know, even with 10 or 15 or 20 franchises, it grew very quickly your role changes. Now you are in a corporate setting. You're a part of the corporate executive team. Tell me how you guys divided up responsibilities. Did Dave and Jerome focus on the business and operations end and you focused on the branding side and being a sort of a brand ambassador? So the three of us each have these great strengths in our lanes. So I consider myself like the artist. So the artist is the one I created, right? The art of the workout. Then we see like Dave Long as the manager. He manages the business. He's the CEO. And Jerome is without a doubt an entrepreneur a thousand percent. His concern is, how do we open up 10 more, 10 more, 10 more? Yeah. But my intentions never changed from... 50 years ago when I got in this business was I really had the desire to offer great fitness to people. And then the other half of that was to allow a fitness environment that a fitness professional who wanted to work in it could make a decent living. Those were two things that I often found lacked in the fitness industry. And that's why a lot of people got out of, you know, getting into fitness. It was like a side job. It wasn't like a career. Yeah. So I love the fact there's more and more fitness professionals now I'm giving work to. Yeah. How did you, I mean, the growth of this business just exploded. Like you, you opened the first location in 2010, 
right? By 2014, so four years later, you've got almost 80 studios. By 2016, you have 400 studios in six countries and 40 states. I mean, that pace just seems totally nuts, just such a huge, explosive growth. I think, you know, did you, up until this point, your whole life, you had a very clear way of living. You were teaching classes. You were running gyms. It was one location. That's what you did. Now, in your 50s, you completely changed the way you live and work and structure your time and your life. So how did you cope with that? Yeah, it's a lot. And especially now, you know, I'm 67 years old. So it's a type of thing where I guess because this came to me late guy in my 50s, I yeah. spent a many a decades living a certain way. So I'm not yeah. really living much different. I have the same friends. I have the same, you know, circles, the same things that I do, this type of thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of, I mean, there are some businesses that where the people start them when they're very young and they don't have any kids or a mortgage. There's some businesses, of course, people start when they have kids and they make it work. And then you started this. Your kid was already older. He did, didn't need you to like pack his lunches anymore. Exactly. He living on his own. He co-owns four Orange Theory Studios. Oh, wow. <laughs> he lives in Tennessee. He's got three kids. He's, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you about COVID. Right before COVID, I think you guys had about 1,200 studios in 22 countries. What happened during COVID? Yeah, no, COVID is, was horrible. We have 1,500 studios open and 1,500 mm-hmm. studios closed. That just was devastating. We pivoted as quickly as we can to go to virtual. But that didn't really cover it. No, we just needed to do what best we could for our members and for our franchisees. You know, that was of our greatest concern. But what did you do during that time? How did you, I mean, you guys were probably in crisis mode. Was there ever a moment where you thought, this is not going to, this isn't going to survive? I don't think that. Um, luckily, coming out of it, people do want to be in a studio concept or in a group concept. They don't want to exercise in front of their TV. And uh, we have found that since 2021, we've increased our member base by 51%. And we just feel by the end of this year, you know, we'll be back pre-COVID. Yeah. But, but it's very tough. It breaks our heart because, you know, our franchisees are our, our business partners. And there was a lot of struggle going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, I mean, today I think you've got how many locations? About 1,300? 1,500. 1,500. Okay. 23 countries. I mean, it's it's just remarkable, right? And this was not your intention or your goal or your expectation, but it made you rich like later in life, which is probably, I have to imagine, totally unexpected. Totally unexpected. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, and I would even say that when I'm teaching classes. I'm like, okay, guys, let's make it through our 70s, 80s, and you know, hopefully maybe even 90s. You're still going to see me here. <laughs> but you know, what really excites me is this huge platform to be able to do what I had intentions of doing 50 years ago. And maybe then I was only doing it for you know the group of 30 women in my class or the spa that I managed who maybe had 300 members to have like a million individuals who have been touched by this workout and have made their life better. Listen, does it get much better? Yeah. 
By the way, do you ever teach classes anymore? You know, I, I just stopped before COVID. I was coaching mm. right up to before COVID, and then I just really haven't gone back to actually coaching. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And do you take the classes yourself oh, yeah. regularly? Or Yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately, right now with the knee, I've got some things going on. But once I get my new knees, I'll be ready to go. <laughs> and so how do you adjust for that? Because I, I think that's a big market. I think... I think there's a huge untapped market of people who did run, did yoga, did pull out, did stuff, and then had hip replacements in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And there's no one who's really it's like this physical therapy, but there's no classes that are geared towards people like that. Yes, I was just talking about this. Mm. You know, I talk about that 95-year-old woman in Colorado. Do you know that she joined mid-COVID? the Colorado studio. And she sent me a picture with her mask on. She was taking class. I said, how are you doing this, Betty? Tell me, explain, what was your thinking? And she goes, I know all about what goes on with the heart and the lungs, and I've got to fight that now. So why would I not do this? So it's just, uh, you know, an attitude. And I'd love to get out there more with people to say, give it a try. Yeah. I wonder, Ellen, when you think about what happened, because this was only the last 13 years of your life, right? Before it was like your life before, which was great. Like you really built a great reputation and and then the life after. And what happened, the explosive growth of this concept and all the wealth it created and jobs and all these things. How much of that do you attribute to to you, your hard work, your intelligence, and how much do you think had to do with just how lucky you got? You know, look, I definitely have been described as relentless. And, you know, I grab on a kind of a dog with a bone and, you know. You don't let go. I really don't. And that, you know, may come from (laughs) way back at my father. So whatever I'm doing, and it could be a menial thing, I'm going to do it at the best that I can do it. I'm an intentional learner. I was just listening to a webinar on how heart rate responds when you're on a bike, how it responds when you're on a treadmill, how it responds when you're on a rower. Just the other day, you know, my uh, design team laughs at me at corporate. They're like, you'll never stop, will you? So intentional learning, I think absolutely being uh, relentless was a big part of success. I think that You know, many people are in jobs that they're miserable at. And what a a thing that I'll contribute to my father as well. When I was in high school, I remember asking him, gee, dad, I don't know what to do. What do you think I should be? What should I take in college? And he looked at me and said, I don't care what you choose. I just want you to be passionate about it. He goes, because when you're passionate about something you do, you will always find work and you may find even a lot of money one day. Hmm. Wasn't he brilliant with that advice way, way, way back then. That's Ellen Latham, creator and co-founder of Orange Theory Fitness. By the way, a few years ago, Ellen had the opportunity to honor her dad, Art Calandrelli, on the very football field where he spent much of his life coaching. He probably never made more than $50,000 a year and was the happiest man walking around Mm. day to day. And I was able to get the football field that he practiced years and years and played games on named after my father. So it's now the Mm. Art Calandrelli Football Stadium. And I give two scholarships every year to football players that would need it to go to college. And that's probably a major thing I'm proud of. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Please do follow this show so you don't miss any new episodes on Apple Podcasts. Just click the plus sign at the top of the app. And on Spotify, just click the follow button. If you want to contact our team, our email address is hibt at id.wondery.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, our account is at How I Built This and mine is at Guy Raz. And on Instagram, we're at How I Built This and I'm at Guy.Raz. This episode was produced by Alex Chung with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. It was edited by Neva Grant with research help from Sam Paulson and technical assistance from Patrick Murray. Our production staff also includes Casey Herman, J.C. Howard, Carrie Thompson, Kira Joaquim, Elaine Coates, John Isabella, Chris Messini, and Carla Estevez. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. If you like How I Built This, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The global smartwatch industry is worth $45 billion annually. The Apple Watch is the undisputed bestseller, but Apple's dominance wasn't always a given. In the wake of Steve Jobs' death, Samsung was ready to capitalize on the company's uncertain path and beat Apple to market with the first smartwatch. By 2013, Samsung had become an electronics powerhouse, a far cry from its humble origins as a family grocery store. It was ready to take on Silicon Valley's finest. In this face-off, both companies will have to sway consumers while surviving PR disasters as they open the Pandora's box of interactive biometrics. Hi, I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery's show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time, and in our latest season, we're clocking the fierce battle over wearable technology between Apple and Samsung. Make sure you follow Business Wars wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.